Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs. The Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Welcome back to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to this teaching concerning the Word of God, the Holy Bible, uh, specifically the King James Bible, taking it back to its uh, its Greek roots. Um, as we mentioned in the previous broadcast, there's really not much question about the uh, the Hebrew background of the King James Bible. It's not as varied and contested as the New Testament is in its Greek form. Uh, so we, we don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking about the Masoretic text and, and its background. But for some reason, the world at large, uh, they struggle. They, they don't mind God going from Hebrew to English, but they really struggle with God's ability to go from Greek to English. And because of that, we have to spend quite a bit of time uh, reviewing the, the Greek background of our English Bible, not because we think we need to refer to the Greek or Hebrew. Uh, I'm of the mindset that God gave us a, a pure Bible in English, and there is no need for us to refer to Greek or Hebrew. That is my contention. That is my, uh, that's where my mind is at. And I hope I can help you to get there. And so the purpose of these studies is to take the Bible back to its Greek roots and to walk with, with a, a what, what appears to be just a a good man in Dean John Virgin, and um, and to to go through the evidence that he laid out that points us to the proper text for the New Testament, and 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 the and the reason this is so contested is because there are other texts that that are that are vying for that position, um, most notably the Alexandrian Alexandrian line of manuscripts that were promoted by Westcott and Hort and Tischendorf and other men throughout history who who really who really stirred the embers of of confusion and division by introducing these false texts or these corrupt texts into the mix. And so uh, we're going to pick up right right about where we left off in the last broadcast. The Bible is divine. Now we're talking about textual criticism. And Burton did a great job of laying out the difficulties of applying the science of textual criticism to a divine book, that is going to cause inherent difficulties. 
Um, you, you can't treat it like every other book. Now, I understand that the unbelieving textual critic is not going to see it that way. I, I, I understand. Even many Christians are not going to see it that way, unfortunately. The reality is God promised that he would give his word. He promised he would protect his word. He promised he would preserve his word. And that the very words he gave to his prophets and, and to his apostles, the men who, who were the human instruments used to record God's words, when they wrote it down, what they gave us, what was God's promise that what, what was given to them was pure and holy, and what we have today is also still pure and holy. And so we, we don't want to add any, any form of corruption to it whatsoever. And we, and we want to take God at his word. He said he was going to do this. He said he was going to uh, preserve and protect his word, and, and, he, and he has absolutely done so. Now, the fact that the Bible is divine, it, it presents great difficulty to the textual critic. Um, the Bible, as well as its Greek and Hebrew origins, cannot be treated as other ancient documents. Um, you know, it's, it's, again, as we mentioned in the previous broadcast and, and, and in, the, in the introductory portion of this, this broadcast, it's going to overlap with the previous so we can make sure we tie it all together. It was actually one lesson, and, and, and I want to try to keep these right at, right at one hour. So we're having to kind of overlap uh, two lessons out of the one because I, I apparently talked too much and couldn't fit it all into, into one recording. But that's okay. I've, I've got time. I'm going to take my time and go through this. I hope you enjoy the material. I hope it helps you, and I hope you'll take your time to go through it. It's the Word of God. It's, it's worth it. And so th this brings about much confusion when, it go when you look at the history and accuracy of God's Word. It, it doesn't cast doubt on the history and accuracy of God's Word, but a divine book, you're going to, it's going to be difficult. What other book could you think of, honestly? that has numerous different authors over a vast expanse of time who sat down in different places from a wide, wide territory of the world. They all came from different places. Many of them came from different places. Some were from the same place. But, but th th we're talking about, I mean, this, this is such an expansive idea that no other book has ever been subject to. And that makes it incredibly difficult to sit down with the basics of textual criticism and treat this book like it's any other book. It's not like any other book. E even if you take the, the divine aspect away from it and you just look at how it was formed by various writers from different places over, over, about a, <laughs> over a massive expanse of time, Two, two major language, languages and, and, and a mi minor portion in a third language with the Aramaic uh, portions of the Bible, but predominantly Greek and Hebrew. Um, no other book has ever been put together this way. And then when you sit and examine it, it flows perfectly and beautifully, and it all fits together as though these men were sitting in the same room, uh, you know, uh, brainstorming on how to come up with a book that can do what the Bible does. It's just not possible. And so that, that just creates inherent difficulties when it comes to textual criticism. Now, the, the Bible is authored by God himself. He used men to write it down. And that's often, you know, often a point of contention for unbelievers. 
you know, they, they like to come to you and say, you know, men wrote the Bible. <laughs> it's like, well, did you think Casper the Friendly Ghost came down and wrote it? I mean, I, I don't understand how that's supposed to be, you know, how that's supposed to cause me to doubt its validity. Of course, men wrote the Bible, but what they wrote were God's words. Now, that's the part you have difficulty with. You assume, you presume I'm supposed to have dif- difficulty with the fact that men were used to write the words, but I don't. I don't find that difficult at all. I, actually, I kind of find that, you know, rooted in reality. <laughs> I mean, it's somewhat necessary. Now, could God wrote the ten, the original Ten Commandments with His finger? Could he have come down and written, you know, written his own word? Absolutely, he could have. But that's not how he chose to do it. He chose to use men. And the Bible's very clear about that. Repeatedly in the Bible, uh, God says that he, he used men to write his word. So that, that's, that's not a, a point of contention. It doesn't, it doesn't cast any... If you're going to say that men writing the Bible cast doubt on its validity or its truth, then you have to say that about every single book ever written including the one that told you that men wrote the Bible. So just because men wrote it doesn't mean it doesn't have truth in it, uh, or that it is true, or that it is pure. That idea doesn't invalidate the purity of the Word of God. Now, I understand you're trying to, you're trying to demonstrate to me that men were involved, and so because men were involved, I should automatically assume there are problems. And I, I, I get that. I understand what you're trying to accomplish with that, um, but I'm suggesting that you haven't accomplished it, and I'm not doubting what God did and what God gave us. I, I trust the Word of God. I think it's perfect. I think it's pure, and uh, I believe God preserved it, and I believe we have that preservation in the English language, and that we can use that since the entire world, to some extent, reads and studies English. It's a great foundation and great starting point to get the Word of God into the hands of other people. And so telling me that it was written by men doesn't shake my faith in that book. I've read it. It's amazing how many people come to me and and say, you know, there are contradictions in the Bible. And I'll ask them to show them to me. And then I'll put a, you know, just just some, some reasonable rules. I'll say it has to be contradictions that you found while you were reading the Bible. And of course, that ends the conversation because they didn't find any contradictions in the Bible. What they did was heard their favorite scoffer say something about the Bible. They thought it was acceptable for them to go and repeat what that person said. But when they're held to the fire to show something that they found when they were studying the Bible, well, I can't do that. So the conversation doesn't go very far. And and that's okay. if, If you want to live life with, with that, that level of a lack of intellectual honesty, that's up to you. The, the point is, though, the Bible can't be placed amongst, you know, sacred books. It's not Plato. It's not Aristotle. It's, it's not the Quran. It's not uh, the, the Book of Mormon. <laughs> you know, it's, it, the Quran is funny. The Book of Mormon is just, is just ridiculous. If, if you've ever looked into it or read it, it's, and so you can't put the Bible, though, though the world does, if you're going to be intellectually honest, you have to at least admit there is something different about that book. Uh, you may not be willing or, or ready to say, okay, it is God's word, but an honest review of all the, the sacred writings, if you will, 
what caused you to say there is something elevated, there is something transcendent about the, the King James Bible. It's just different. Now, again, you, you may not be ready to admit it, it is different in the way that, that proves it belongs to God or came from God. I get that, that it's divine. I, I, I'm not asking you to go that far. I'm asking you to at least be honest, at least be intellectually honest and admit there is something different about that book and that that should, that should dictate to some extent your approach to it. Intellectual honesty is greatly lacking in the world today from people I agree with and from people I disagree with. I, I, I've, I have learned to try and look at things objectively and, and to have some means of credible validation for what I believe and for what I say and for what I teach. And it really is liberating. It, it's a, that, that is a wonderful concept. You know, break away from ideology, break away from propaganda and attach yourself to objective truth, something that could be demonstrated. Now, a measure of this, a measure of it has to be taken by faith, but it's not blind faith. There is plenty of historical, factual, objective data and information that would point you in the direction of exactly what the Bible says about itself. Your faith will then be supported by factual information. Having those two go hand in hand, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's wonderful. Um, you know, I, I, this flow back and forth, if, if we think about Christians, between the, 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 the writings of lost men and, and the writings of God, I, I don't understand how, how they can so easily go from divine revelation to the corrupt thoughts of men. Um, it, it's, it's difficult for me to, to see how you could be so easily influenced by lost men and, and that you will trust them over the words that God gave. I'm not going to do, I'm not willing to do that. Now, I, if we go back to my statement earlier about, um, the, the writings of men, you know, the, the accusation that men wrote the, this book, there's hypocrisy on both sides, and I, and I try to avoid both ditches. The lost world, they'll come to you and they'll say, you know, men wrote the Bible, and because men wrote the Bible, that's supposed to mean the Bible is corrupt. The implicit assumption is that is that anything written by men must then also be corrupt. Well, except for the men that they read from. <laughs> When it comes to the men that they read from, well, their writings are not corrupt. They're telling the truth. But the men that I read from, because I disagree with them, I, I'm probably reading from corrupt men. That's hypocritical. If, you're, if your argument is that men wrote the Bible and because men had a hand in writing the Bible, it is corrupt, then that means that anything men wrote is corrupt, period. And so nothing can be trusted. We have no truth and, and nobody knows anything. Very few people, except for modern-day, hardcore, leftist, progressive, woke fools, believe that. Truth does exist. In fact, it's interwoven into reality, and that's something they hate. They want me and they want you to be able to say that a man can just, can just declare himself a woman, and that we are all supposed to ignore objective reality and biological facts and, and play that game. And, and because most people are not willing to do that, they're having a really hard time right now. And, uh, and, and so they resort to calling you games, but then, uh, calling you names, calling you bigoted and, and many other things. And so, but then you have my side, you have my crowd, 
And what we say is, you know, men wrote the Bible, but God, you know, God used those men. And because God used those men, the Bible is true. That's a factual statement made in faith. But we can't say men wrote the Bible and we can trust those men and they did not cause harm to the Bible. There are no, there, you know, nothing happened to the Bible. And then also say that everything that men wrote outside the Bible is corrupt. <laughs> you know, bo- both are, both are, 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 you know, fallacies. Ne- ne- both are illogical. Ne- neither, neither position, the lost person's position or the Christian's position makes any sense. Now, the only thing that upholds our position is the fact that God was directly involved. So it, it is true that men can write things and it can be corrupt. It's also true that men can write things and it can, it can be factually accurate. The reality is you generally have a combination of the two when you're dealing with uh, professional people with integrity. It, their writings will be, will be factually correct, but it will be intermingled with some mistakes or some errors here and there. That's just, just the way it is. But here's where the faith comes in. When by faith, you believe that God gave his word to men and had those men record it, and then God promised to preserve and protect those recorded words, well, now now you're in a whole different arena. I'm not arguing with you about the ability of man to 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 be factually correct or the ability of man to make a mess of things. Because depending on the man, the level of his ability to do one or the other is going to be elevated in one direction or the other. And and I'm okay with that. I understand that. But what I'm telling you is that God wrote the Bible. I'm telling you that God gave his word to those men, and then those men recorded it. And then God said, the recorded words are what I said, and those recorded words are what I'm going to preserve. And and God has done that. We have that in the King King James Bible. So we we, we don't go down the road of contradiction or, or a lack of you know, or, or demonstrating a lack of intellectual honesty. Instead, instead, we 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 can be honest about man's ability on one side and man's ability on the other side. But then we also have to be honest about God's ability and God and God's role in all of this. God did use sinful men who were prone to make mistakes. Peter, Peter wrote two books of the Bible at least. Peter is famous for making mistakes with his mouth <laughs> for saying things he shouldn't be saying. But but that doesn't limit God's ability to use him and to write his word and to record his word. In fact, Peter said some really important things about, about the the preservation and the 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 lack of corruption and, and the fact that men are not supposed to have any form of private interpretation regarding God's word. Peter said those things. And I believe it. I believe it to be true. And so it, it's, it's there for your examination. But the word of God is pure. Pure words. That means no admixture of error. And we not only have that in our traditional Greek text and in the Masoretic Hebrew text, that, that was transferred, and this is where, this is where I'm going to lose some of you, <laughs> that was transferred into the King James Bible. It is accurate. It is pure. It is right. 
and we have it in the English language. Praise the Lord. Now, both the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his word have been shamefully handled throughout history. And this fact, this fact was present in the very early days of the Christian faith. And while the Lord was on earth, he endured <laughs> such contradiction of sinners against himself. This same attitude that existed against the Lord Jesus Christ and against the words he spoke when he was physically present on earth still exists today regarding his words. From the early days until now, that attitude is still here. It still thrives and still has a place in Christianity, which is amazing. I am often amazed by the number of missionaries that's taken in the form of missions. The number of missionaries who don't believe that God's word is perfect, that God's word is pure, that the biblical word is pure. The propaganda word, the ideological word is perfect. As far as I can remember or, or, or can think of in my own mind, I don't believe the Bible ever mentions the word perfect in reference to the word of God. Now, some of you might start thinking about 1 Corinthians uh, 13, when that which is perfect is come. Unfortunately for you, the context of that passage has nothing to do with the Word of God. So when that which is perfect is come is not a reference to the Word of God. Uh, it's a nice thing for you to say. If you're going to study that passage in the context, it has nothing to do with the Word of God. You're probably wondering what it has to do with. Well, you should go study it and run the cross-references, and you'll find out. Let the Bible tell you what it's talking about. Don't try and put something in there and tell the Bible what it's talking about. That's a private interpretation, unfortunately one that has lasted a long time throughout Baptist history. It's one of those, Baptists have some crazy teachings that I don't understand, and I don't know why they say some of the things they say. Those are my brethren. I love them. I respect them. I don't agree with them all the time. They certainly don't agree with me all the time, but our, our end goal is the same. The Bible doesn't use the word perfect in reference to the Word of God. Preserved, pure, holy, right. These are the terms the Bible uses. Uh, we have adopted this idea of perfection in reference to the Word of God. I'm not suggesting it's wrong. I'm just telling you the Bible never refers to it that way. And it would help us in our defense of the Word of God to adopt biblical terminology so that we are defending what the Bible says about itself rather than the monikers we have put on the Bible. And oftentimes, we, you know, we're often arguing with what I call seminary schoolboy dogma. These seminaries, they create straw men, and then they argue against the straw man they created. And you know, they win all the arguments because they created the opposition. <laughs> They made up what the opposition is saying, and so that's not where we are or where we want to be. But So what ends up happening is that instead of teaching what the Bible says, and instead of using the terminology about the Bible that the Bible gives about itself, we end up involved in arguments about terms that we made up, that we applied, or we end up in arguments about terms that seminary schoolboys made up. Uh, in order to to give us a position rather than asking us what our position is. And, and, and so I, I'm not condemning the idea that the Bible is perfect or using that term. Not necessarily. I am telling you, you're going to have a hard time defending that reality, not because the Bible lacks perfection, 
but because the Bible never says that about itself. Now, if you want to say the Bible was pure, if you want to say it's holy, if you want to say it's right, if you want to say any of the things the Bible says about itself, you'll have a much easier time defending it because that's, that's what God said. And it just seems reasonable to try and defend what God said rather than trying to create a position or defend a position that was created. And, and, and so I hope that makes sense. Now, many of these attempts became well-known and even revered by Christians. And, and this idea of replacing God's word or this idea of, of, of the reckless malice um, that ends up being applied to the word of God um, Christians buy into it. And I don't know why. I don't know why there's not an immediate, immediate defense when you hear someone question God's word. Instead, we listen to it and we say, oh, okay, that sounds reasonable. And we adopt what is said about God's word rather than what God's word says about itself. And so some of these attempts to replace God's word come by way of the Septuagint, the diatessaron, um, the, the various manuscripts that, that came to exist over time, um, corrupt documents that garner reverence by people who profess to love God and his word. <laughs> How can you say on one hand, I love God, and then on the other hand, adopt a corrupt text? And many of these are objectively corrupt. It, it, again, this is not just an opinion. Anything that came from Origen or Tischendorf or anyone who follows them, it, it continues on today. The idea is to correct God's word, and to correct is to corrupt. When you decide there needs to be a correction to God's word, you have decided to corrupt God's word. When you have decided you need to change something in God's word, you have decided to corrupt God's word. And that is an ungodly stance regarding the word of God, and, and it should stop. It should go away. And I, I hope that God's people will adopt a, a, a more sound position regarding the Word of God and, and break away from this idea that, that God's Word can or should be, be corrected in any way. Now, so now as we move into the next section, um, you know, not, not only is the Bible divine, but God the Holy Spirit will guide us in the direction of truth. He will guide us into all truth. That is extremely important. Uh, that's important for Christians to know because it plays a major role throughout history in the preservation of the Word of God. John 16, 13 says, Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. So before the Lord Jesus ascended into heaven, which is, by the way, removed from many modern Bibles, all references to the ascension of Jesus Christ, it was removed from many of the Alexandrian texts and therefore removed from many modern Bibles. That's a bit of a problem. But before the Lord ascended into heaven, he promised the spirit of truth would come and that that spirit, the Holy Spirit, would lead us into all truth. We would not be left without truth. We, we would have the Holy Spirit. We would have access to truth. The Spirit would lead us to what is true. And the Holy Spirit would abide with the church until the Lord takes full ownership of the purchased possession. 
If you read in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, it says, We are sealed with the spirit of promise until the redemption of the purchased possession. Until the Lord comes and takes us, we have the Holy Spirit, which means we have access to the truth. Until we're, when the Lord takes us, our bodies will be made like his bodies, and then we, we will no longer need this guidance to the truth. We have full, unadulterated access to the truth all the time with no desire for untruth. Praise the Lord. I look forward to that day. Now, the Holy Spirit inspired God's Word. He used men of the New Testament church to pen His Word, and He uses the New Testament church to distribute His Word. But we have to have His Word. None of that is possible without access to His Word. It is expected we're going to do all of that. And it is not possible if you don't have God's Word. I talked about missionaries earlier that don't believe they have the Word of God. Why would you leave your home country, travel across the world to a land generally more difficult than the one you live in, to teach that you don't have God's Word? Like, What, what are you going to do when you get there? You don't, have, you don't have anything to teach them. You don't have a book from God to teach them. You might as well just be there to give them food and toilets and solar. Make their life a little more comfortable before they die and go to hell because you don't believe you have God's word to give them. That's a ridiculous idea. So all the Old Testament and all the New Testament are necessary and profitable. And certain books seem to stand out for obvious reasons. But as we look back, we try to find the text, the group of texts, the manuscripts that are the word of God in Greek form one of the, the ways that John Bergen found to be most profitable to identify that was using the four Gospels. Now, the four Gospels stand out for, for very obvious reasons. They detail the life of Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh while on earth, and they give us many of those details. Now, the four Gospels, they tell us about the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit gave us his word along with numerous promises of protection, purity, and preservation. It doesn't seem that Christians believe that. It is not apparent that Christians really put much weight to the Word of God at all. They kind of use it here and there. It's a tool. It's good to have. It's full of some good sayings. But it's but it really carries no weight in their life. I, I, I don't understand this approach to God's Word. We have no reason whatsoever to think the Holy Spirit abandon those promises. He promised protection, purity, preservation of the very words that God gave. Did he fail? Did he quit? I don't think so. In terms of extant Greek text, thousands of them come together as one massive witness to the fact that the Spirit of God has in fact preserved God's Word. That's just in Greek form, and more, more texts are discovered on a fairly regular basis, and everybody's all excited that we're finally going to prove the Bible is wrong, <laughs> and they just end up agreeing with the Word of God, and if they disagree with the Word of God, they, they are subsequently proven to be fakes. Every time. It never fails. Praise the Lord. Uh, that excites me. Now, 
what I need to know or what I want to understand is how have Christians been so easily duped by the wiles of men like Tischendorf or Jerome or Westcott and Hort? Tischendorf found some, just a few manuscripts in a trash heap. These manuscripts were being used to start fires for a monastery in Egypt. These monks knew that there was nothing to, they were useless. The only use they had was to start a fire. In a day when paper was extremely expensive, they were using these to start fires. And somehow these have been used to supplant the overwhelming witness of thousands of manuscripts that come from different places and different periods of times, and they all agree with one another. Why is it you give more weight to the trash than to the thousands of manuscripts that agree hand in hand? I don't understand that. It has to be a spiritual problem. It's not evidential. The evidence, the weight of evidence would be heavily in favor of the traditional text, of the Antiochian text, of the majority text, of the Byzantine text. Everything goes wrong when the Alexandrian text is subject to scrutiny. If it's being scrutinized by anyone honest, well, Dean Burgeon was honest. He was very honest. And he looked at this objectively. And it was his hope, as, we, as we'll find out very clearly in just a moment, it was his hope that the evidence he found would be looked at by objective judges. And, and we'll, we'll read his quote in full in, in just a moment. But Tischendorf's documents, as few as there are, they don't agree with each other. The few that he found in the trash heap, they disagree one with another. The few manuscripts that make up the Alexandrian line of manuscripts altogether, they disagree. They don't even agree together. But the, the overwhelming thousands of manuscripts that make up what has come to be known as the Antiochian line or the traditional text, they agree with near perfection. It's up to you. You, you, you make your choice. I'll make my choice. I believe I, I have made my choice by following the overwhelming amount of evidence that exists by honest men who did honest work to either prove or disprove that we have God's word. And Bergen did that. This is not just common sense evidence, but it provides demonstrable proof of preservation, just as God promised. The Holy Spirit said he would preserve God's word. He has absolutely done that. If you want to point to the Greek, he's absolutely done that. But I, I believe that has been condensed in a very real and honest and integral fashion into our English Bible. And instead of going and hunting down Greek manuscripts that we can't read or get our hands on, we have all of that. With the same purity that, that God promised in those Greek texts, we have that in our King James Bible. But what about the church? So the Bible is divine. The Holy Spirit promised to preserve it. What role does the church play in this? And we do play a role. The traditional text was protected by the Orthodox Church of the Byzantine Empire. Now, that's not a good start. <laughs> At least, it doesn't appear to be. 
we, we would not assume God could use such an ungodly organization as, a, as an Orthodox church uh, to protect his word, but that's exactly what he did. Just as he used Cyrus, just as he used Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he used the Orthodox Church of the Byzantine Empire. And as a matter of historical fact, this cannot be disputed. It, it is absolute fact. We struggle with this idea. The idea that this, this Orthodox Church that doesn't agree with us in doctrine, they don't even agree with us about the preservation of God's Word. They believe God's Word is subject to their form of the Pope. But they didn't touch the Word of God while it was in their possession. Now, on the one side, the Orthodox churches are well known for viewing the Bible as inferior to church leadership. And as such, when the Bible and human church leadership disagree, adherents to such churches are required to abandon the Bible. That's their attitude to the Word of God. And to facilitate this approach to God's Word, the Bible is often edited to suit newly established beliefs of these churches. And somehow that didn't happen in the Byzantine Empire because God was protecting and preserving his word. Now, I understand this because it is so contrary to the typical attitude of Orthodox churches, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Church, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Coptic Church in, in, in Egypt. None of them place an emphasis on the word of God. They believe the word of God is subject to their church leadership and the decisions the church leadership make. But that did not happen under the, the Byzantine Empire. Praise the Lord. So it, it is difficult to imagine that such a church could have been in possession of the majority traditional Greek text, and they made no changes whatsoever. But this is unbelievably historically documented and accurate. Jerome, open about it. I changed God's word. Uh, Origen, open about it. I changed God's word. Uh, Westcott and Hort, I changed God's word. Tischendorf, I changed God's word. They, in their own writings, they say it, they state it openly. They want you to know they think it's a good thing that they changed God's word. The Byzantine Empire didn't touch it. Left it exactly as it was. And not only is that historically accurate, but every time a new text is found that is of the Antiochian line that, that was outside the Byzantine Empire, it matches what, what came out of the Byzantine Empire perfectly. That's the fact of the matter. That, that is not an opinion. That is absolutely historically accurate. Now, on the other side, fundamental Bible-believing Christians could never see ourselves aligning with organizations that sprinkle babies for salvation or eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood for communion. Oh, we, we struggle with that idea. But God used that church to preserve his word. It's difficult for us to imagine, but, but that's, that's how he did it. Uh, now, physical preservation by an other-than-godly organization is matched by, by the use of God's people. Over time, Bible-believing Christians gravitated to the traditional text. Now, I can't speak for—the word Christianity is, is highly abused. It is not used in a biblical manner. I know that doesn't surprise you, but that's it, it's worth stating because I am speaking on behalf of Bible-believing Christians. And even smaller than that, a more fundamental King James Bible-believing crowd of people. Over time, Bible-believing Christians gravitated to the King James Bible. 
even through the early 1900s to the to the 1960s, that time period, uh, before Peter Ruckman came along and fried everybody's brains by suggesting that that we have the perfect Word of God in the King James Bible, uh, the best of preachers would go back and forth between the King James Bible in Greek or the King James Bible and the, and the Revised Version, but they could not let go of that King James Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I, I, he, he's such a deep and thoughtful preacher, but he drives me insane with his correction of the Bible. Uh, he's a brilliant man. His brilliance in no way compares to even one of the King James translators, not even in the slightest. But he still thinks he he knows more than they did, and he has uh, the right and ability and even the, the theological aptitude to be able to tell the 54 brilliant linguistic scholars where they went wrong in translating the King James Bible. It drives me insane. But he still read and used the King James Bible. Bible-believing Christians cannot let go of that book. It's just the, it's God's Word. Uh, Christians, Bible-believing Christians, they want God's words. Not a book that was subject to the editorial opinions of religious men. So the reality of the historical continuity of the traditional text has been reluctantly noted by even its, its enemies. Our, our friend Hort, he wrote regarding this matter, and he noted certain undesirable realities regarding the traditional text. And this is the best thing in the world, when the enemies of the text have to admit the realities of the text. Hort said, and I quote, The fundamental text of the late extant Greek manuscripts generally is beyond all question identical with the dominant Antiochian or Greco-Syrian text of the second half of the fourth century. The bulk of extant manuscripts written from about three or four to ten to or eleven centuries later must have had in the greater number of extant variations a common original either contemporary with or older than our oldest manuscripts. Now, this is why this is so deceptive. Their argument is we have the oldest text, so ours must be correct. That's the foundation of their argument. At best, if you want to give it any form of intellectual honesty and and integrity, which they had none of, the best argument they can come up with is the age of their text. And he's saying here that this massive expanse of manuscripts that's called the traditional text, it at least goes back to the same age as our text. Now, this must have been a, must have been a difficult omission for him. Now, th- this must have been difficult for him to admit, but when we consider the, that age is one of the primary arguments against the traditional text, it's, it's a shameful admission. It's, it's a problem. Getting people to be honest enough to be able to admit to admit to the problem, that's the issue. He also said, and I quote, Before the close of the 4th century, as we have said, a Greek text not materially differing from the almost universal text of the 9th century and the Middle Ages was dominant, probably by authority, at Antioch and exercised much influence elsewhere. He mentions the authority of Antioch here, from him, that's supposed to be a negative. That, that's supposed to be proof that there was a problem with this uh, central authority in Antioch. Apparently, they were forcing people to use 
the traditional text the, or, te- or manuscripts that extend from the traditional, the traditional line, line or what has been come to known as the Antiochian line. And so that's, that's supposed to be a, a negative. But Antioch is where Paul and Barnabas started their great missionary journeys. Antioch is home to one of the greatest New Testament, one of the greatest churches in our New Testament. How is that a negative? That, that means it's pointing us in the right direction to the right people who had the right leadership, who were influenced by Paul and Barnabas themselves. Or you could go to Alexandria, and every single time Alexandria is mentioned in your Bible, every single time Egypt is mentioned in your, in your Bible, it is, it is related to bondage, sin, false doctrine, or incomplete doctrine. Every time. So I'll stick with the this supposed authority at Antioch. Of course, uh, Hort was no, is notorious for making these types of statements and having absolutely nothing, no historical background, no information to back it up whatsoever. He just he just said stuff, and uh, was never able to really prove anything that he had to say. Um, but he he was in a position where he could make such statements, and people would just they would just take him at his word. They just, they just listened to him. That's embarrassing. So as we move down, Dean Bergen praises the Texas Receptus as a continuation of this continuity between, from the traditional text. Again, Hort meant to be negative, but in his admission to, to both the age and continuity of the traditional text, he ends up verifying what we know to be true about the traditional text. And so Bergen praises the Textus Receptus as a continuation of this continuity. And, but rather than you know, existing in scattered manuscripts, it has been collected into one book you know, that, that became the Greek New Testament. So the, the, the Textus Receptus, so as you get from the wide expanse of traditional text manuscripts that are scattered all over the earth, that are in the hands of different people who, who may or may not let you get your hands on it and see it and read it and, and, and do anything with it, which is reasonable, these are ancient, antique manuscripts. Even by the time Erasmus came around, th- these were ancient manuscripts. And so Erasmus produced what came to be known as the Textus Receptus. He took that scattered group of accurate traditional text manuscripts, and he put them in one book that became a Greek New Testament. That's a big step moving towards our King James Bible, a huge step in the right direction um, now you have a printed copy that agrees with all those Greek manuscripts in one book. That is amazing. That is a huge advancement in the world and, and, in, and in the Christian world. You now have a copy of God's Word. You don't have to travel across the world to some monastery or to some Roman Catholic church or to some other authority who got their hands on an antique manuscript and they keep it locked away safely behind (laughs) massive security and will never let you get to it. Now it's printed in a book. And you can save your money and buy a copy and have the Word of God in Greek form in a single book. I hope you understand the, the magnitude of that. Now, Bergen did not fully accept Erasmus' Texas Receptus. Uh, he believed it still needed work, and uh, so did other men. And this is the problem. So if we come back to 
the Christian world, all right? But we, we've, we've talked a little bit about the secular world. We've talked a little bit more about the hypocrisy and the ridiculousness of the Christian world. And then we've talked about the, the more fundamental, hardcore Bible-believing Christians, which are, which are, <laughs> which are tiny. It's a tiny group. The, the, this middle world of Christians who just accept anything that anybody says and, and have no real conviction or foundation, uh, what, what they say is, we, we believe the Word of God is in the Textus Receptus. There are at least 19 editions of the Textus Receptus made by three different men. Which one? And by the way, out of those 19 editions, none of them was called the Textus Receptus. Not a single one. It wasn't until the Elsevier brothers came along and began printing the Textus Receptus, and then they began editing and making their own copies. They made 10 more of their own editions of the Textus Receptus. So all in all, there are 29 editions of the Textus Receptus, and it wasn't until the Elsevier brothers, after Erasmus, after Stephanus, after Theodore Beza, the Elsevier brothers began calling it the, the Textus Receptus, Bonaventure Elsevier is the one who gave it this title. So when you say the Word of God is in the Textus Receptus, and that's what you're referring to, and, and, and they often call the Textus Receptus the original. It's not an original. <laughs> if it is, which one is the original? It, it, it's, it's silly. You make no sense. You're incoherent. It's not logical. You should abandon that position and come to a more reasonable fundamental Bible-believing position that can be easily defended, that makes sense, and that fits the biblical narrative. Uh, now, Dean Burgeon didn't fully accept Erasmus' Textus Receptus, but, but again, even the King James translators, they used Theodore Beza's, I believe, third edition as the foundation for the New Testament of the Textus Receptus, or as, as a major part of it. Uh, they didn't even use Erasmus' work. They didn't use Robert Stephanus' work. They didn't use the Elsevier brothers' work. Now, of course, the Elsevier brothers, I believe it was 1633 when they began printing their editions of the Textus Receptus. So the, the, the work of the translators was done by the time the Elsevier brothers came around. But um, the King James translators used the work of Theodore Beza for the King James Bible. This further displays the unity of Bible believers as well as the guidance of the Holy Spirit as the book that followed the traditional text produced our Greek New Testament as well as the English New Testament. All right, so if you look at the progression, you have the traditional text, thousands of manuscripts scattered across the earth, uh, difficult to get to, but they exist. Someone like Erasmus, he has the authority, the ability, the money, the knowledge to get his hands on some of these manuscripts and to condense it into a, a usable book, New Testament Greek book. By the time we get to Theodore Beza, that book is perfected, and we now have a book that is good enough that the King James translators say, we're going to use Theodore Beza's work to translate the English Bible. Then it goes from Theodore Beza's Textus Receptus to the New Testament in English form in the King James Bible. And uh, so it just follows this path and is perfectly consistent with what the crazy, fundamental, King James, Bible-believing Christians teach and say. They can't articulate that, and they don't explain it very well, but it flows perfectly. 
both historically, along with the, the science of textual criticism. It fits the biblical narrative. It's spiritually correct. We have the Word of God in English. I don't understand what the problem is with that. <laughs> but it, it's a problem for some people. So our, our case is quite simple. God gave His Word. The church now adopts and protects that Word with the help of the Holy Spirit, That protection is not separate from the preservation carried out by the Holy Spirit himself. A majority of accurate texts exist, of which were approved by the church at Antioch, Syria, the home of one of the greatest churches in the New Testament. That majority text remained the same throughout the ages with little to no variation between a wide variety of thousands of manuscripts. It was then consolidated into what uh, Bonaventure Elsevier eventually named the Texas Receptus. The Texas Receptus played a major role in producing the New Testament of the King James Bible in English, along with a few other Bibles around the world, including Luther's Bible over in Germany. We trust these texts and these Bibles so long as that the Holy Spirit preserved uh, continuity within them. That's not a difficult position to state or defend. In fact, it's it's unbelievably true. And, and so that's, that's what I intend to demonstrate over the next several months as we study this out even further and try to make sense of it together. And I hope you'll follow along, and I hope it will help. Now, to close out, where is this textual continuity found? All right, this is going to state our intent. This is the question we're going to try to resolve over time. We're going to follow what the work of Dean Burgeon and and see what he found. Can we depend upon the overwhelming magnitude of manuscripts that exist with nigh unto perfect continuity, or should we be looking elsewhere for the true text of of God's Word? Now, the answer to that seems apparent, but if you look at the division, if you look at the lack of trust in God's word, it obviously is not as apparent as I would like it as, as I would like to think that it is. Do we abandon that overwhelming majority in favor of a very small minority of admittedly older text that cannot agree together, nor do they agree with the collective majority text? If you're gonna if you're gonna abandon this massive expanse of agreeing text of text that have beautiful continuity. And you're going to abandon that for one of the Alexandrian manuscripts. Which one's it going to be? You have to pick one because none of them agree together. You can't use them as a collective basis of accuracy because they none of them agree. They all disagree. You can do that with the majority text because they all agree. You cannot do that with the Alexandrian line of manuscripts. So, The traditional texts, also known as the majority texts, have thousands of copies extant. They were copied by different people in a wide range of places across the world, and somehow they all came out the same. The Alexandrian text came from the same people in the same place, and yet they disagree amongst themselves. The only claim of some strength that the Alexandrian text has is that of antiquity. But again, antique does not mean accurate. And that could not be any more true when dealing with this text, the Alexandrian text. Now, majority doesn't mean accurate either. But majority scattered across time and with sources from a wide variety of people and places, uh, that's a very good argument for accuracy. 
The fact that there are a lot of them doesn't necessarily mean they're accurate. But the fact that there are a lot of them from different people and different places over a wide expanse of time, that's pretty hard to knock down. So this is the foundation of the argument. One side is correct and one side is wrong. That There cannot be any meeting in the middle. Either we have God's word or we do not. If we do not, we are all in serious trouble. How can we know if Christ is risen without God's word to inform us? And if Christ be not risen, then you are yet in your sins. We need to be able to know the status of the resurrection absolutely, not generally. It's imperative. It's extremely, extremely important. Now, I'm going to end with this quote from Dean Burgeon, and this will let you, let you know the heart of this man. We'll, we'll see over time the hypocrisy that comes from Westcott and Hort, Tischendorf, Jerome, Origen, all these men that corrupted God's word. Listen to the heart of this man, Dean Burgeon. This is what he said at the outset of his work. Before I lay down my pen, I propose to make educated persons, wherever they may be found, partakers of my own profound conviction that for the most part certainly is attainable on this subject matter, but that the decrees of the popular school, at the which stand many of the noted critics of Christendom, are utterly mistaken. Founded, as I venture to think, on entirely false premises, their conclusions almost invariably are altogether wrong. And this I hold to be demonstrable, and I propose in the ensuing pages to establish the fact. If I do not succeed, I shall pay the penalty for my presumption and my folly. But if I succeed, and I wish to have jurists and persons skilled in the law of evidence, or at least thoughtful judges and unprejudiced persons, wherever they may be found, and no others, for my judge, if I establish my position, let my father and my mother's son be kindly remembered by the church of Christ when he has departed hence. So let me take a moment and let me kindly remember Dean Burgeon now. I hope you'll do the same. Thank you for listening. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.